Coming up on Transformers University. We've talked about Transformers the movie many times on this show, but now we're going to talk about Transformers the movie that wasn't. We're going to take a deep dive into an early draft of the Transformers the movie script by Ron Friedman right now on Transformers University. Hello, my friend, and welcome to episode 89 of Transformers University. I am your host, Anthony Brucali, owner-operator, madman behind TFU.info, the website, this podcast, TFU News and Views podcast, the social media, and oh so much more. And I want to thank you for continuing on this ride with me at Transformers University. Uh, we're coming up on our third anniversary, and I just want to thank everyone who has been a part of this show, whether you've been a guest on the show, a patron, uh, tweeted at me, emailed me, called our voicemail line, which no one has done yet, or just, you know, um, or that one dude that stopped me at New York Comic Con because he recognized my voice and, and told me he liked the show. So to all of you fine folks out there who have been enjoying the show for 89, well, this will be 89, I guess, 89 episodes and then some i just want to thank you and i do want to do one thing here that i haven't done uh i don't think ever i usually shout out a new patron when they come forward but i've never gone back and just given a quick shout out to all of the patrons on the show so i'm going to do that right now all of our 29 current patrons and a quick shout out so i want to thank you all uh from our super seniors like Dinobot Maximize, Eric Sire, John Forex Levengood, Glenn Jakeman, Paul Heal, Rob G, and Sean Hamilton. Our seniors, Brad Pelletier, Crip Corey Goonin, Jacob Owen Lucha, Lucas Garrett, and simply Kyle. Our junior class, Bradford Crenshaw, Brian Kilby of Radio Free Cybertron, James Spicer, Jeremy Dennis of Transmissions Podcast, Mauricio Cafiero, Miguel Gonzalez of Steel City Bots, Nelson Brewer, and Ryan Seba. Our sophomore class, Jason Kirk of Podvocacy, John Triclops, and Mike Seibert of Mike Seibert Radio Podcast. And then, of course, our freshmen, Dave Van Domlin, David Schulz, the gamer going gray, J. Aaron Poole, Ken, Steve Stonebreaker, author of the Transformers FAQ, and Tim Wiley. So all 29 of you current ones and our past patrons as well. I don't want to leave you folks out. All of you, thank you so much for supporting this podcast for 89 episodes now and into the next 89. Don't worry, the podcast isn't going anywhere, but I will be for just a second. Be right back after this. Hey, want to help out this podcast or the website tfu.info? There's a number of ways you can do it. Let me tell you how. You can help us directly by joining our Patreon and enrolling as a student at Transformers University. There, you'll get early access to the podcast as well as exclusive behind-the-scenes peaks and perks for as little as $1 a month. Sign up is quick and easy. Just swing on by to www.patreon.com slash tfuinfo. Another way you can help us is by using our Amazon link, www.tfu.info slash Amazon. 
Type that into your browser whenever you want to shop at Amazon and a portion of what you spend will be contributed back to us. It's that easy. Finally, you don't become the world's longest running transforming toy archive without some help from other fans. We're always on the hunt for photos of figures and accessories we're missing from our pages. If you'd like to contribute, go to tfu.info slash help for a list of what we need or send an email to info at tfu.info. tfu.info, the alpha trion and omega prime of transforming toys. Now, back to the show. Okay, so on to today's topic, Transformers the Movie, the Ron Friedman script. Now, we talked about Transformers the Movie a while back. I'm surprised at how many episodes back it has been, but that was our 50th episode spectacular, spanned episodes 50 and 51, plus our interview with J.C. Reifenberg in episode 52. And in 50 and 51, we really did discuss a lot of the changes from storyboard to the final film. This script that uh, is available online, if you just search uh, Transformers the Movie and Ron Friedman and like First Draft, uh, there is a Google Drive link out there uh, that links to this script. It's in CBR format, which means you can read it on your, your favorite comic book reader. It might also be in PDF format. And of course, I'll include a link to the file in the show notes. And a big shout out goes out to Mike Seibert of Mike Seibert Radio Podcast, who gave me the idea and actually told me the script was out there. Uh, a while back, but uh, this this whole episode was pretty much his idea. So uh, thank you, Mike. And uh, if you haven't caught his show, you can catch it basically everywhere you listen to this show. So go check out Mike Seibert Radio Podcast. Now, this is this is a big deal to me. What is titled on the cover as New Draft, so it's not the first draft, but it's an early draft, uh, and it's dated April 24th, 1985. Uh, there's also some updated pages in here. So it says completed. So I'm guessing this is the completed and submitted draft, uh, April 27th, 1985. So over the course of these three days, there were some revisions made and completed by Ron Friedman. Now, why are those dates important? Okay, well, season one ended with Heavy Metal War in December of 1984. Season two debuted in September of 1985. So this script was written between seasons one and two. And that is enormously important when you think about Transformers the movie. Because start thinking about those characters and those character choices that are in that film. And you get answers to your questions like, where are the Aerialbots? Where are the Autobot combiners? Where's Omega Supreme? A lot of those characters weren't conceived or, I don't want to say available, but it's clear Ron Friedman was working with uh, a limited set of characters that they knew were going to be toys and then another set of characters that they knew were going to be toys in 1986. Now, the script itself, it's different enough to talk about. Uh, It's relatively the same framework of a story that we have in the final version uh, with uh, Flint Dilly's additions and changes and, and everything else that goes along with the production process. The other thing to note about when this was written, if this was written between seasons two, one and two, as opposed to during season two, the decision to kill Optimus Prime and Megatron was made before there were another whole 49 episodes of season two. So that's a, that's a, big big thing so that means three two i mean season two was produced 
maybe not by the writers involved or even any of the staff on the show, but at least from Hasbro's perspective, with full knowledge that they were going to kill off Prime, Megatron, and a bunch of others, including Starscream and, and a few others as well. So like I said, the script doesn't change that much uh, in terms of the end results. But how we get to a lot of these things is very different. Now, the film starts off not with the Lithone scene of Unicron eating Lithone, but starts with Unicron floating in space like this. And it's kind of just like a... It's a scene setter. It's a way to just kind of show Unicron floating. And I should say planet Unicron, because what they're talking about in the script is the planet and this these gases around it. And um, there's nothing eating. You know, there's no planet eating another planet. And then, of course, we get our opening credits. We get a voiceover about Cybertron, and it is five years since the Autobots came to Earth and worked with the humans. So this story doesn't take place in the far-flung future of 2005. This takes place in the near future of 1989, 1990. So depending on where you want to start that five years from, uh, if it's five years since the film came out or five years from uh, the Autobots coming to Earth, which I guess doesn't count the four million years they were actually sleeping in a volcano, but it puts it somewhere in 1989 or 1990. Um, and it starts right after the credits with uh, the shuttle being launched, but this time it is a weapons delivery for Earth. And Prime and Jazz and Cliffjumper are all in the same location, as opposed to Jazz and Cliffjumper being off on a moon base. So the shuttle takes off and the Decepticons spying follow. And we get a wide shot of the Decepticons approaching the shuttle. And it's uh, it's a Megatron along with uh, the Insecticons and the Constructicons, as well as Starscream and Dirge, Thrust, and Blitzwing, plus other Decepticons. And that's I'm quoting that right off the script. And from there, so we get an implied attack on the ship. We don't actually see the attack on the ship. On the May 5th, 1985 scene that is added in, we get the attack on the ship uh, with Ironhide and Prowl and Ratchet and Brawn. And the descriptions of the fight are actually very different to what was animated. So it says Brawn was, quote, cut in half by Megatron's attack. Prowl was melted down by Scavenger. And then Megatron, Scavenger, and Kickback fire at Ratchet and Ironhide. And Ironhide and Ratchet are then, quote, fused together, unquote, only to be blown apart. There's no line such as this one. Such heroic nonsense. And then from there we go to uh, the fishing hole scene. In the fishing hole scene, Daniel is older. He is 12 years old, according to the script, which means that in the far-flung future of 1989, five years after the Autobots came to Earth and were helped by the Witwickies, let's say Spike was, what, 16? That means Spike would be about 21 here, which means he would have had to have Daniel at the age of nine. So 
the interesting thing here is that Daniel is not described as Spike's son. In fact, Spike isn't in this script at all. There are no mentions of Spike. And Daniel has a bicycle, not a hoverboard. Lookout Mountain is called Lookout Point in this script. So what we find out here is that there were two different versions of the shuttle attack. As I mentioned before, the initial shuttle attack was inserted on May 2nd. However, it was in the script before that. It was just in a different place, and it was written differently as well. But it, the shuttle attack took place after the cutaway. So we have the Decepticons flying after the ship. We cut away to Daniel and Hot Rod on Earth. And Daniel and Hot Rod are there doing their whole fishing thing. And then Hot Rod takes him up to Lookout Mountain, or Lookout Point, as it's called in the script. Then the shuttle attack happens. So that, that's just one of the subtle changes here. Uh, and that shuttle attack has Ironhide thinking to himself that he saw something on the sensors. Uh, he blames it on getting old. As he says, getting old, Megatron shoots his way into the ship and says, but no older, um, and then blasts Ironhide to pieces. So Ironhide is the first one to fall in the original writing of the shuttle scene. The Insecticons and Constructicons then barge in. They, quote, disintegrate Prowl and chew Brawn to pieces. And that is the shuttle attack as written in the first draft. And this leads to the Decepticons attack on Autobot City, which of course Hot Rod and Daniel spot from Lookout Point. Uh, the attack begins and Hot Rod and Daniel are actually shaken down from Lookout Point by Hook and Scavenger and then are threatened by Blitzwing to come down. So the attack begins, the Autobots start scrambling, and something that's interesting about the first draft of this script, and it's it's something that kind of stuck around a little bit in the in the final version, but is is certainly all over the place in this script. And I don't mean like all over the place, like not making sense. I mean it is littered throughout the script, is Ultra Magnus not understanding Perceptor's highfalutin speaking. It it becomes a running joke in a lot of ways. Uh, in in this iteration of the script, Springer and RC are then sent to mobilize a resistance as opposed to transforming Autobot City because Ultra Magnus is going to transform Autobot City. RC and Springer are headed to the armory. Uh, they get attacked by Starscream. Starscream still gets his foot stuck. Megatron commands his troops to breach the perimeter before Autobot City can transform. Enter the Insecticons. Here we get the famous scene of Cup and Hot Rod doing this. The Insecticons are in our way. Wrong. They're our way in. Yeah. Ultra Magnus then commands the city from inside because he is the city commander. And Perceptor goes to find Blaster. Here's where things get really different for a little bit. And uh, some of this is really interesting. And some of this has a ripple effect in actual Transformer continuity down the line oh maybe not maybe not this particular thing but something else later on and this is where ultra magnus has wheeljack yes wheeljack activates something called the Anibots. 
to stop the Constructicons. These Anibots were in the, quote, RoboZoo Lab. What are the Anibots? So what you have here are five Autobots, all with unique names. And since one of them is named Pardo, look at this in the style of late SNL announcer Don Pardo, and introduce you to the Anabots as if they were cast members of SNL. It's RoboZoo Lab Live! Starring Simba the Lion, Pardo the Leopard, Shriek the Eagle, Thump the Buffalo, G.E. Smith and the Saturday Night Live Band, musical guest, Clump the Rhino, and your host, Dragon Beast. Ladies and gentlemen, Dragon Beast. You know, I've been looking for a way to add that level of stupidity into the show, so I appreciate you indulging me with that. Um... So the Anabots, if we look at their, their alt modes, lion, leopard, eagle, buffalo, rhino, musical guest, those are the components of Predaking. So uh, it leads me to wonder if these five characters, with a couple of tweaks, were then turned into Predaking. So the Anabots, they go on to fight the Constructicons. And, you know, we get to... Uh, Blaster sending his message to Optimus Prime on Cybertron. Blaster rhymes everything in this script. I mean, everything, almost everything. It's like one line, it doesn't rhyme. And on Cybertron, Cliffjumper and Jazz receive bits of this message and relay it to Optimus Prime, which is a little different than Optimus Prime getting it directly uh, in the final script. Megatron wants that message stopped. So he has Soundwave deploy his cassettes, just like in the final. Uh, we get the line, no way two can play as the uh, Decepticon cassettes attack Blaster and his cassettes. But Blaster's cassettes have different names and um, mostly different alternate forms. So the cassettes are described as Stripes, uh, who is a tiger. And uh, I'll get back to him in just a second. Cubby, uh, who is a lion, which was probably Steeljaw. Steeljaw, the lion. Stinger. A scorpion, so there was a plan for a cassette that turned into an Autobot scorpion, and Bolts, the robot, I'm assuming Bolts would later become both Rewind and Eject, uh, just, you know, the mold being used twice in the toy line, uh, because a lot of the actions described of what Bolts was doing during this fight are things that either Rewind or Eject did. Stripes uh, is important here, because even though he was just a character in a draft of a script, Stripes actually would go on to get multiple toys. Uh, he he is generally just of uh, some form of a reused version of Ravage, uh, but he had a toy in the Japanese line of Encores, first time he got a toy. That was an orange version of the Ravage cassette. He got a, a toy in the U.S. in the Generations line in... I think it was still, tight, uh, still Combiner Wars at that point, but it might have been right around the Titan's Return combiner wars changeover and he also got a toy in all lines 
and really it's just so weird in masterpiece as part of an exclusive set of autobot cassettes but that's a conversation for another day at the battle we have some interesting and different things uh power glide and warpath fight blitzwing and they shoot him into the fishing hole uh we get a scene where skywarp and thundercracker uh breach one of the walls of autobot city uh, behind the wall, they encounter Blue Streak, Hound, and Sunstreaker. It's described in the script that Blue Streak cuts Thundercracker in half, and Hound uh, starts to shoot the legs out from underneath the Decepticons. Back on the moon base, Cliffjumper, Jazz, and Bumblebee are busy herding Dinobots onto the shuttle for Optimus. So this, again, this echoes into the story that we would see on the screen that scene at the end of the battle of autobot city where they're herding the dinobots onto the shuttle that was always a little weird right because we never saw that in the cartoon well this script was written between seasons one and two so we only had a little bit of dinobots uh to really use from season one so uh, i guess ron freeman was trying to create this idea that they needed to be herded on to wherever they were going because they weren't that smart um and because it only appears once in the film, the final version, it's a little odd, but he, clearly he sets it up early and then reintroduces it later after the Battle of Autobot City. And as they do this, Optimus gets on the shuttle. He leaves Cliffjumper and Jazz in charge. Now, the shuttle heads to Earth, but as it's heading to Earth, it's attacked by Astrotrain. Uh, I thought that's interesting and unique. And then at Autobot City... Megatron orders the Constructicons not to merge for the kill, but to merge for final assault. I'm shaking my fist right now. Doesn't have the same ring to it, does it? Uh, Springer's pushback line is also different. Uh, he also does not say he has better things to do tonight than die. And the Devastator scene has a little bit more dialogue to it, but it's mostly the same. Inside, Ultra Magnus orders Wheeljack to initiate Dragon Beast. That's uh, in quotes. He says, initiate Dragon Beast. Uh, Wheeljack then merges the Anabots, which I was hinting at uh, as Don Pardo. And there's, in fact, concept drawings of Dragon Beast. Uh, you can find them on TF Wiki if you look up Dragon Beast. Uh, these are Floro uh, Dairy Designs. Um, Dragon Beast can breathe lightning, and he fights Devastator. Optimus's shuttle then enters the atmosphere with Astro Train on its tail, and Optimus sends the Dinobots out to shoot down Astro Train as the Dinobots enter the battle in the city. Devastator is separated by the Dragon Beast, and the fight continues. So it's interesting here is that the Dinobots were meant to fight Astro Train, whereas the Dragon Beast was meant to fight devastator well if you remove astrotrain and you remove the antibots you then get a hole on both sides to have the dinobots fighting devastator as they do in the final version of the film hot rod cup rc and friends celebrate inside of their pillbox after devastator is separated and we get a hint at the romance between hot rod and rc uh, they 
kind of unconsciously hold each other's hands during uh, this celebration. The shuttle lands and Optimus sets out to challenge Megatron. So uh, there's no big scene here of Optimus driving out and beating the crap out of everyone. He just basically shows up for a one-on-one showdown. And uh, Megatron sends uh, Dirge in to fight him instead, and Optimus uh, dispatches of him rather quickly. Then Optimus and Megatron fight, and none of the famous lines are here. None of the one shall stand, one shall fall, why throw away your life so recklessly. All the lines you can quote off the top of your head, all the ones that have appeared in comics and other Transformers movies and media throughout the years, uh, none of them are here. None of them. Um, however, Megatron does spear Optimus in the side, uh, but he also pulls a laser dagger from his boot. And yes, some of the lines are still in here. Uh, about ripping out his optics, that's still in there. Uh, sterner stuff, that's in there as well. Cup's line about finish him off Prime, that's in there. However, Hot Rod being told that it's Prime's fight, not in there. So with that in mind, Hot Rod still interferes with the fight. Megatron throws Hot Rod at Optimus Prime and then shoots Prime and says, fall, use great scrap heat, fall. Uh, yeah, again, not a, not as much bite as the final version. And Prime does not get to say his never line as he takes out Megatron for one last time. After the fight, Starscream gloats over Megatron. Megatron knows he is dying and mentions his, quote, life spark. Uh, this is another interesting little piece of this script because the life spark is actually going to play a very important role throughout this script. The Decepticons flee aboard Astrotrain as they all begin to argue over who gets to lead the Decepticons, all knowing that Megatron is about to die. Optimus's death scene, roughly the same. There is no Matrix in this scene, though, and he transfers his life spark to Ultra Magnus. Now, the life spark is described as a glowing miniature Optimus Prime. Prime's last words are, till all life sparks are one, and uh, everyone replies, till all are one. So Ultra Magnus, now the leader of the Autobots, believes they should root out the Decepticons before they can choose a new leader. Uh, there's a running gag here, again, of, of Ultra Magnus not understanding Perceptor, uh, but first, they need to rebuild Autobot City. Again, we're teased with a bit of the romance between Hot Rod and RC. And then we cut away to Astrotrain in space, the Decepticons aboard arguing and fighting over leadership. But Megatron is still alive as he's witnessing all of this. Finally, Astrotrain lands at the Decepticon Hall of Heroes. Now, the Decepticon Hall of Heroes is an interesting uh, type of place. I'm going to read you the description right out of the script. Here we go. The hall looks like a mechanistic, art deco, high-tech version of the Albert Speer design setting for Hitler's Nuremberg Party rally. A semicircular colonnade in which the columns are constructed of an eerie, light-emitting, carved metallic crystalline substance glowing coldly. The columns ring half of a large, circular floor paved with steel and stone flooring plates 
which interlock in an intricate design. Inside the half ring of huge columns is another semicircle of Decepticon dead hero statues. Each statue is set in a coffin-like stone niche, and each statue and each coffin rests on a pedestal, and inside each pedestal is a glowing niche in which rests the life spark of each Decepticon statue in a transparent urn. The Decepticon life sparks are something like the Autobot life spark we saw in Optimus Prime, only their light is a cold, greenish, baleful glare, and their forms are indistinct and ghostly, shimmering, uncertain. A trickle of pale light moves up from each life spark in each urn in a thin line of energy, which ends in a slow and pulsing glow on the chest cavity of each glaring statue. So that's a pretty bleak and dark kind of place, but it does reference something very real and very scary, and that is the Albert Speer Cathedral of Light. Um, so this is a real thing uh, that he that Ron Friedman describes in this script. The Cathedral of Light, or Lichtdom, Lichtdom, as uh, it would be called in German, uh, was an aesthetic feature of of Nazi party rallies in Nuremberg from 1934 to 1938. And I'm half reading this off of Wikipedia. But the basic premise of these things was to create the feeling of something huge in front of an audience. What they did is they took airplane searchlights and turned them on and pointed them straight up behind uh, the stage. And you do this with enough of these and it creates like bars of light that can be pointed straight up at the sky and almost creates like a wall. And so it's very ominous, very imposing. Uh, and, and this is what the Decepticon Hall of Heroes is supposed to feel like. And inside of this Decepticon Hall of Heroes, the Decepticons fight still, uh, even though Megatron is still dying. Your life force is running out and uh, desperately needs his life spark placed in one of these urns. In the fight, Starscream punches Dirge, and he falls back, breaking one of the urns that's set up in the Hall of Heroes, and this sets the life spark free, and this ghostly life spark uh, floats upward. And then the fight continues, and uh, more destruction happens, and more urns are broken, as Megatron continues to die. Finally, one of the statues is knocked over and falls on Megatron, finally killing him. Uh, in the script, it says it breaks him into a thousand shards. And Megatron watches from his eyes as his life spark floats out of his body and dies. Uh, his body dies and his life spark floats away. The life spark of Megatron and the other Decepticon life sparks that are there uh, start floating through space like this. And they are approached by a ghostly voice. The voice pulls these life sparks to a, quote, slab-like mechanical planet. This is Planet Unicron. And the voice is of the villain we saw at the beginning of the film, Unicron. No, it's not Unicron. In this script, he is called Ingestor. Now, Ingestor is uh, offering... Megatron and these ghost Decepticons, new bodies, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. The conditions is that they serve only the ghostly voice of Ingestor. 
Here, Megatron is turned into Galvatron. Scourge and the Sweeps are born, as well as Cyclonus and his armada. Now, it's interesting to note here that there is a little bit more to the armada piece of this, that it was left in the final script. Because it says here, as Cyclonus is created from LifeSpark, and then his armada, in quotes, of similar but smaller and similarly colored and clad creatures are formed. So much like the sweeps, the Decepticons were supposed to have an armada or the armada of Cyclonus clones. From here, Galvatron is sent to reclaim the Decepticons and give Cybertron's energy to Ingestor. Back at the Decepticon Hall of Heroes, Starscream is finally receiving his coronation. Uh, the dialogue in the scene is kind of different, but it all plays out much the same. Galvatron kills Starscream and then gives all of the Energon cubes that are there to Ingestor. Uh, a beam comes down and sucks up the energy. And planet Unicron then comes into Cybertron's orbit. At the moon base, Cliffjumper and Jazz, they see this planet come into their orbit, and they radio Earth. Planet Unicron devours Cybertron's, quote, third moon um, of five. Uh, we actually find out in the script that Cybertron has five moons. And, of course, the third moon is where Jazz and Cliffjumper are. Uh, they try to escape in an escape pod, but the pod is sucked into Planet Unicron. Planet Unicron then grows a little, and Ingestor orders Galvatron to Earth for more energy. At Autobot City, Ultra Magnus gets a delivery from, quote, a special messenger, and that is Blur, the Autobot data courier. Uh, so interesting that Blur is introduced here in the film, whereas he's introduced much earlier in the final version of the film, and he tells... Ultra Magnus of the issues on Cybertron's third moon, as well as an incoming Decepticon invasion force. So the Decepticons attack and the battle ensues. And uh, in here we get a few things like uh, a little bit more romantic tension between Hot Rod and RC. We get the line about you better stay close to me. We also get Springer's springing ability, which we've talked about here in a number of our books episodes for 1986. That Springer is written with this ability to jump around. And uh, during the melee, Blur is now put in charge of hurting the Dinobots. In this battle, Autobot City is destroyed. And uh, we get an, a glimpse at some of the other Autobots that we haven't seen in this film. Ones we may have wondered what happened to them between seasons two and three, uh, there's a group of Autobots that are surrounded, and that group is Blaster, Gears, Windcharger, and Mirage. In the script, Cyclonus bombs Gears to pieces and then knocks Windcharger into the air, uh, only then to be cut in half by the Armada. And parts of Windcharger then rain on Blaster and the other Autobots who then flee. As the battle continues, the Decepticons now decide to focus on the shuttles. 
Hot Rod and Cup load the Dinobots and launch. Springer, RC, and Daniel uh, try to board another shuttle with Ultra Magnus. RC is racing uh, for the moving shuttle. That scene is still in the film. Uh, but instead of, you know, reaching out and grabbing Springer's hand, he says, try springing for it. And she uh, jumps her way into the ship and the shuttle takes off. Galvatron, angry, uh, leaves in his ship, which is described to be kind of like an aircraft carrier. So it's not just a big Cyclonus. And the refugee Autobots on Earth watch on, and those Autobots are Blaster, Sunstreaker, and Trailbreaker among, uh, I guess, a group, but those are the ones that are singled out. In space, we get the Autobot combatant scene again. We get Cup telling his stories. Uh, but the Autobots see an energy beam begin to flow from Earth. On Earth, the sweeps have enslaved both humans and remaining Autobots. And on the shuttle, Perceptor uh, merges mind links uh, with the computer on the ship to trace the destination of the beam. And he's about to reveal what it is when the ships are attacked again. And this is where we get... Uh, Stuff similar to what we saw in the final film. In this one, though, Hot Rod and Cup's ship is blown up. Ultra Magnus and company escape in the front quarter of their ship, just like in the film. And then we cut back to Earth, where there's a bunch of uh, guerrilla Autobots in hiding, Blaster, Sun Trigger, Troutbreaker, and others. And they encounter Wheeljack, who survived the Battle of Autobot City. Wheeljack informs Blaster of the shuttles and their destruction or at least apparent destruction, and Blaster just does not believe it. In space, Hot Rod and Cup crash on the planet Quintesson. Yes, Quintesson, not Quintessa. As I've been saying for the last 40 episodes or so, I have a feeling it wasn't called Quintessa because we keep getting it called Quintesson in other media. We get the scene of, uh, you know, under under the water and Cup having to be rebuilt. These are all roughly the same. We meet the Sharktacons and uh, Hot Rod and Cup greet them and get captured with the universal greeting. Uh, the universal greeting in this script is Grana Weep Ninibong. There's no Ba Weep at the top. It just is all Grana Weep Ninibong. Now, here's where things get a little different and Kind of interesting to me and uh, in how they, they changed in the final. In the cell, Hot Rod and Cup meet a prisoner. His name is Granix with a G, not Cranix with a K like we would see in the final version of the film. Granix is made of granite and he is from the planet Lithone, which now explains Lithone a lot better because the ancient Greek word for stone is lithos that's right granix who would later be cranix is a rock lord and that to me is so much cooler than what we got in the final film uh granix explains the quintessence uh and then he is put on trial by the lead quintesson elsewhere ultra magnus's ship crashes on junkion this scene is mostly the same daniel gets his exosuit but it's not spike's exosuit elsewhere the dinobots are walking 
and they meet the lead Quintesson, who tricks them into going another way. Now, I'm going to note here, and we'll get into it a little deeper later on, uh, the Quintessons are described very differently than how they were animated in the final version of the film. But we'll talk about that soon. On the planet Unicron, Galvatron confronts Ingestor. The planet Unicron during this confrontation, it's becoming more alive. Uh, and Ingestor informs Galvatron that Ultra Magnus is still alive. Ingestor then eats another one of Cybertron's moons. Back on planet Quintesson, so Hot Rod and Cup go on trial, but instead of being held over the Sharktacon pit as it is in the film, actually entered into an arena and their guards give them stun sticks, which I guess are, you know, staffs, which they're going to use to defend themselves. Uh, Hot Rod then uh, leaps out of the pit and gets his stun stick around the throat of the lead Quintesson. And again, this goes into the anatomy of these Quintessons. They are uh, five-headed creatures on physical bodies. They're not just floating five heads. And then we cut away outside to where uh, the Dinobots meet Wheelie, uh, which kind of breaks the tension of the scene. But then we come back and we find out that um, because he's got him by the, the neck, the Quintesson gets the last laugh because the head of the Quintesson, the five heads, flies off and lands on a fresh new body. So now Hot Rod and Cup have to fight the Sharktacons. The Dinobots arrive and help drive everyone off. They free all the prisoners as the Quintessons flee. And Hot Rod, Cup, the Autobots, the Dinobots, they leave the planet Quintesson uh, in the hands of a, quote, huge glass warrior robot. It was one of the prisoners. Uh, that's how he's described, and that's all we know. But apparently he is smart enough and capable enough to run the planet. The Autobots leave in uh, the Quintesson ship, as they do in the final film, and then we head over to the planet of junk to have the Decepticons attack. In this uh, attack, Ultra Magnus has a plan. See, on the ship, he's had Perceptor build clones of the entire Autobot crew, the exception of Ultra Magnus. Uh, these mini-clones are in Perceptor's briefcase. And Perceptor lets him know that Decepticons aren't going to be fooled for long. And Ultra Magnus says, quote, I can deal with that, which is the direct opposite of him saying, I can't deal with that now. The Autobots enact a plan, hide. The Decepticons attack the Autobot clones. They all get blown up and Galvatron goes for Ultra Magnus and shoots him. The damaged Ultra Magnus, he takes a point blank shot from Galvatron and explodes. Galvatron then cuts Optimus Prime's life spark from Ultra Magnus and places it in a small bottle around his neck. So instead of the matrix of leadership being the important kind of uh, MacGuffin device here, uh, it's Optimus Prime's spark that everyone's chasing after. The rest of the Autobots, they realize Ultra Magnus sacrificed himself for the team and the Decepticons flee just in time for the Junkions to attack. Hot Rod and company arrive. They drop a Grana Weep Ninny Bong on the Junkions. Everyone loves each other, and they rebuild Ultra Magnus. Now, here, the Autobots don't know who will lead. 
no one has Optimus Prime's life spark. And this is where we see Hot Rod take command. Um, so he's not bestowed the mantle of leadership. He he takes it on as an opportunity. It's a it's an interesting take. And um, everyone else seems to pretty much fall in line with that. On planet Unicron, Galvatron confronts Ingestor. And he plans to blow up planet Unicron with a bomb. Galvatron then sets off the bomb. And the bomb gives Ingestor enough energy to finish his recharge. The planet then transforms, and we find out the big secret that Ingestor is planet Unicron. Within this transformation, Galvatron becomes stranded on Ingestor's eyebrow. Ingestor attacks Cybertron, and here's where we get some more old faces. Uh, Shockwave and the Decepticons, they mount a counterattack on Ingestor. Shockwave gets chewed up by Ingestor. Thundercracker and Skywarp continue to assault the planet robot, and they get eaten. The Autobots arrive with the Junkion ship and the Dinobots flying behind. They split into three groups. The Autobots are going to attack the head. The Junkions are going to attack the midsection. And the Dinobots are going to attack Ingestor's feet. Hot Rod's ship crashes by Ingestor's ear. And Hot Rod decides to drop in via Ingestor's ear. The other Autobots, they're going to keep Ingestor busy. Ingestor orders Galvatron to go inside of him and find Hot Rod. Galvatron ends up finding Hot Rod inside of Ingestor's chest and yells the phrase Decepticons forever, which is actually a phrase that got used in a later Transformers series that we will cover sometime in the future. Now Hot Rod and Galvatron fight, and in the fight, Hot Rod notices the bottle around Galvatron's neck containing Optimus Prime's life spark. The life spark then speaks to Hot Rod and says, Rise, Rodimus Prime. Hot Rod is then turned into Rodimus Prime, uh, and they fight as the battle rages outside. Galvatron is about to defeat Rodimus Prime by driving a piece of metal through him when Jazz and Cliffjumper shoot the metal out of his hand. They were inside of Ingestor. Their ship was swallowed, and they're there to help Rodimus Prime continue to fight on. In the fight, Galvatron reveals to Rodimus that he is Megatron. Just then, the chain around Galvatron's neck breaks, and the bottle flies and smashes against a wall, and the life spark of Optimus Prime wants to expunge the evil of Ingestor and begins to destroy Ingestor from the inside out. This giant pain causes Ingestor to tear himself apart and this is actually reflected in some of the animation of unicron in the final film where unicron rips his own leg off at the end uh it's never really kind of explained well in the film and i think i've talked about that back in episode 51 but it's in the script from the beginning that he is in so much pain that he decides to tries to tear himself apart the autobots flee and uh an explosion blows Galvatron into space, along with Cliffjumper and Jazz's shuttle. As Rodimus Prime 
uh, is trying to escape, he sees Cybertron's third and fifth moons. Yeah, I, didn't, I don't think I mentioned that it was the fifth moon that was the second one that was eaten, but uh, it's the third and fifth moons of Cybertron inside of Ingestor's stomach. He didn't even chew them. He swallowed them whole. And Rodimus blasts the moons free, and they blow out of Ingestor into orbit. Finally, the ghost of Optimus Prime, his life spark, finishes off Ingestor, and Ingestor dies. Hot Rod then flies into the scene where the rest of the Autobots are. He is the hero. He gets a kiss from RC, and credits. The end. And there you have it. That is Ron Friedman's early draft of a script, and maybe even two drafts of a script. For Transformers, the movie. As you can see, it's 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 very different in a lot of ways. It's very much the same in a lot of ways. The music, which is such a key part of the final film, that's all an afterthought, right? Like nobody wrote wrote to the songs uh, and said, you know, what? this song's got to be here because it helps describe the scene. Like all that stuff was added after the fact. So you know, instruments of destruction or or anything else that was was popped into that film. I uh, was popped in after the fact. So it's interesting also to see how a, a story comes together from, from its inception to the final version because there are just so many people involved with creating something like this, so many personalities, so many uh, artistic drives. What motivated Ron Friedman uh, to pen this script is different than whatever motivated Flint Dilly to make changes on the script. That informs Nelson Shin's direction on the film, uh, the voice acting, everything else. Like it all has to come together, and it all has to make sense. And there's just so many moving parts and so many um, different approaches. It's almost amazing that these things even get made. Thanks for listening to the show. Stick around to hear what's coming up next episode. But first, I want to fill you in on a few ways you can stay in touch with the show. Want to be on the show? Leave us a voicemail at 702-763-4838. That's 702-POD-4TFU. Or send an email to info at tfu.info. Be sure to catch us on Twitter at TFU underscore info and on Facebook and Instagram under the username TFU info, all one word. Also, please subscribe to our YouTube channel, youtube.com slash TFU info, where we post all of our podcasts, plus special video segments, reviews, and live coverage of Transformers-related events such as New York Toy Fair and New York Comic Con. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Please visit us at www.tfu.info, the world's longest-running transforming toy archive. All right, so with 89 episodes behind us, we turn to episode 90. You want to know what's going to be on the next episode? I will tell you this. It is the final episode covering 1986. We are going to move on from the pivotal year in Generation 1 and move on to where the line goes into 1987. We've got one more episode in 1986, and that is the legacy of 1986. Why do we spend so much time on this one particular year of Transformers? We'll talk about it next time on Transformers University. Till then, I am your host, Anthony Bricali, owner, operator, madman behind TFU.info. Till then, see ya.